Welcome back to another episode of The Pod Well Travelled by Seven West Media. I'm Penny Thomas and in the studio today I'm joined by Seven West Media's travel editor Stephen Scalfield and travel writer Moans Johansson. Thanks Penny. Welcome. Thanks Penny. Um, on today's show we've got a few things planned. Later on I'll be speaking to Tourism New Zealand's um, general manager for Australia, Andrew Woodell. He's going to share some interesting, I guess, tidbits about New Zealand and his favourite places to visit and when to go as well. But before that, I'll throw it over to Stephen, who's actually just returned from Penalulu. Um, well, you were up in Kananara to visit the Penalulu Visitor Centre. That's right. So um, the East Kimberley, so the Kimberley, just to put it in con- context, I suppose, um, Western Australia is, is the the western third of the Australian continent, you know, a million square miles in the old, old money, you know, over, well, two and a half, nearly two and a half million square kilometres. The top bit of it is the Kimberley, um, which is a separate bit of geology. I mean, the Kimberley drifted in and welded on. So that's, it's quite a different sort of place. <clears throat> and then the East Kimberley is perhaps, well, I think internationally, most known for the Bungle Bungle Range in Pernalulu National Park. So the Bungle Bungles, as we sort of call it, um, those who know it well, I suppose, are those striped beehive formations, um, hundreds and hundreds of these big domes, um, dare I say, made famous partly by the film Australia, the Baz Luhrmann film Australia, Mm. you know, where rather oddly they chase cattle through them which isn't going to happen um it's a world heritage site just celebrating its 20th anniversary as a world heritage site and you know famous globally it's such a remarkable and dare i say unique um uh, formation so you've got a big sandstone plateau that was has been eroded you know by these huge wet seasons that the kimberley gets as part of the the equatorial monsoon system, erosion, wind erosion over millions of years into these beehive domes. And as part of the, well, really, it marks the 20th anniversary, a new Pernalulu Visitor Centre just opened, um, which is a, a vast improvement. And, yeah, very happy to be there for that. Mm. And you were joined by government officials, and was there a group of you? That oh, sort of every to check man it out? and his dog. Oh no, no dogs in the national park. <laughs> every man, every every man and female, and everyone in between turned up. Yes, it was it was a real celebration. Um, uh, this is a obviously you know very important indigenous um, area, so you know lots of traditional owners uh, were involved in this. There was a smoking ceremony. Um, by the Gidja and Dura people. Um, the Environment Minister for Western Australia was there to do the official opening, Reese Whitby. Um, but also it's been a very big project for the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions, the DBCA. I actually got that in the right order. I had to... <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> you watch me. But, but I mean, you're, you're right. It must have been a huge logistical exercise. Yeah. Building something well, in, in an area that's yeah, that remote. Yeah, just exactly right, Moans. And talking to Mark Phillips, the architect who's who's from Kununurra, from the East Kimberley, just about the logistics of building, because you've got to be out of season, but then it's wet and how do you get stuff in, you know, just... So just the cost and logistics, particularly 
in and post-pandemic, just getting stuff there. And then, of course, the Fitzroy uh, River mm. uh, washed out the bridge at Fitzroy Crossing. So just and then Catherine went under. So just getting getting materials in and getting labour and and so on has been obviously very demanding. Mm. What I was most most interested about though was the visitor centre. Well, not most interested about. I was interested about was the visitor centre staff. Mm. Because they live out there. Yeah. Like for generally for six months a year or eight months a year, the people who, man, who, who person the visitor centre are, um, are remote workers who sort of work, I think it was 10 on, 4 off days. And, but, you know, obviously sort of stay out there, largely stay out there for the whole six months. That sounds like months. a nice FIFO job to me, that one. It sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. My, it's interesting, though, being, you know, being in a little family like that. Um, but they like having the visitors through and, of course, from all over the world. Yeah. Um, that's really the point. So what, what do they have at the visitor centres there? Is there, you know, the usual sort of uh, souvenir shop and uh, very nice other mugs. facilities? Yeah, <laughs> very nice mics. Yeah, but they have facilities and I think more than anything they've got knowledge. Mm. You know, that I think that's really their kind of stock in trade that they will point you towards the indigenous history, the geological history, um, and there's quite a lot of facilities around the park, so you can stay overnight. Um, for example, at Savannah Lodge, which is a tinted cabin, there's um, there is there are camping sites. So, anyone listening, just got to bear in mind. So, we've got the Great Northern Highway. Now, I'll also mention that the low-level crossing at Fitzroy Crossing is now open. So they've put in basically a kind of dirt road through. The, what is now the dry riverbed, which the Fitzroy is most of the year. Mm. So visitors can get in, you can take your caravan as you would from Broome across, you know, the number one highway into or your, your camper van or whatever you've got. So you can get through now between Broome and Kununurra uh, and the East Kimberley. Um but from the Great Northern Highway, there's about seventy. There's about two and a half hours, seventy kilometres of track into Pernalulu, and it's rough. Right. Um, and it's a, a sort of bone of contention. You can leave your caravan at a parking place near on Great Northern Highway, mm-hmm. and then you can drive the Prado, whatever it is. You can drive into there, and you can stay at Savannah Lodge, for example overnight and thoroughly explore the park and i must say it's really important to say that you know pernalulu national park was it was the national park that was is heritage listed not just the bungle bungle range Mm. which are those beehives so there's a lot of other aspects to the national park even though you've got this kind of show pony which takes all the the glory (laughs) takes all the glory um, Echidna Chasm, Cathedral Gorge, there's some mm. really great walks. But even outside those known walks, there are other aspects to the park that are worth um, spending some time there. So to get back to your question, Moans, um, the, the the folk at the visitor centre will point you around all of that. Um, and, you know, and then there's so some nice mugs, there's some nice, mm. there's some great shirts, you know, there's all great. that sort of stuff. Huh? You can't go without that. Can no, you? you can't go without no. that. <laughs> so yeah, so there is this kind of shop aspect of it, but I think as a as a hub for 
pointing people around the park. It's really important. Yeah, nice. I'm actually interested. How long would you advise people to sort of plan for a trip if they were they were wanting to camp or caravan through Penalulu? Oh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, I think if I was going to look, there's other ways of doing this. Sorry, I'll just fill in the gaps a bit. So from Kununurra, which is the main town in the East Kimberley, you can. F- you can do flights seeing, so you can fly over the bungles. From Warman, which is on Great Northern Highway, just sort of north of Pernalulu, you can do helicopter flights in there. Mm. But what I'm getting to is that there are tours in there. So you can you can do a tour in there from Kununurra on, the, you know, on, on land, or you can fly and do tours. So Bungle Bungle guided tours, for example, will package up. So you could fly in. They... The company which owns this owns Savannah Lodge, owns Avier, and owns Bungle Bungle Guided Tours. So you could fly in from Kununurra. You could stay for certainly two nights, possible or three nights. You could, and then you could do tours. On, so then you'd have transport on the ground with them as well. So Cathedral Gorge is, you know. You can do too much in a day. Cathedral Gorge is a good walk and you can spend some time doing that. That's certainly half a day. Echidna Gorge is a different thing again. Um, You could do, there's actually helicopters based there as well. So you could do a helicopter flight, which gives you that sort of, you know. It is spectacular from the air, isn't it? Yeah, it is. is. I've only ever done it from, or seen it from the air, but it is a sight to behold. It is. There's such different experiences, Moans, you know, and, in fact, a friend of mine, Glenn Cheerlow, was making exactly this point. Um, he's the chairman of the Pernalulu World Heritage Committee, actually. And he was making the point that being on the ground there is a totally different experience to seeing it from the air. And he's completely right, you know. that. So my answer to you, sorry, getting back to you, I'm thinking certainly two, probably, possibly three nights. Mm. Okay, well, thanks for that, Stephen. Um, Mullins, you're in to, to give us some tech update. Frame yeah, that yeah. I've, got, I've just come across a couple of sort of interesting sort of newish products. Uh, Framio is like a digital photo frame, and they've been around for a little while now, but uh, oh, quite a while now, should I say. But Framio is a, is a slightly different version of it. Uh, it essentially... Um, you buy this digital photo frame and you connect it up to your home internet and through that you can invite various people to submit pictures to the frame so for example uh, my elderly mother is in a nursing home she's got very poor motor skills after stroke many years ago uh, and she's a little bit of a technophobe as well which doesn't help Mm. so for her to be able to just look at this frame and pictures appearing you know as we our children her children and her grandkids send pictures to the frame uh is is just a game changer Mm. you know she doesn't have to do anything the pictures just appear and they they roll through as a slideshow um and there might be a new pic from from me there might be one from my brother there might be one from one of her grandkids you know that sort of appears on the roll there and you can put little text messages on there as well so i think i think it's a really cool idea uh you know for families just to you know you can have several of these around the family and you can share 
pictures that way and mm. they just sort of keep rolling through and it's a new a new uh, slideshow every other day. Mm. Yeah. Sounds quite innovative, I guess, because with older sort of people or people who aren't um, on social media, they might miss out on watching people's stories and things like that yeah, on Instagram exactly. or Facebook or whatever platform you use. But this sort of invites them in because it's just sort of like uploading a, yeah, a, a yeah. picture to social media, except it just goes to your yeah. direct family member. Exactly. Uh, and in my mother's case, I mean, we've tried all kinds of things, you know, Facebook, uh, Messenger and all these things. And she's got an iPad, but she's not really quite able to to access the content herself so she relies on carers and other people you know to to sort of show her or give her access to it mm. but but this way the frame can sit there on the the, the table or uh, mounted on the wall or whatever and uh, it just happens mm. brilliant it's a nice way to stay connected yeah cool. yeah absolutely can you tell us the name again Bone? sorry it's frameo um so they come in sort of two different sizes i think but the most popular is a sort of 10 by 8 inch uh photo frame uh which is basically as i said just you connect that up to your home wi-fi and then through the frame uh the the software there you invite uh different phone numbers to submit pictures so it's not like the the network or the frame is open to to anyone uh, it's only people you invite to share and you can obviously edit that as you need as you need and want to mm. so uh, yeah i think it's a pretty cool idea we're definitely setting that up for for mum mm. uh, so yeah it'd be good and um, the other thing i came across uh, just a, a new new product uh, We've all heard about the gimbals and uh, some people in this room are sort of uh, more or less enthusiastic about them. But uh, this, this particular uh, gimbal is, uh, has got a couple of extra features to it. I can see Stephen's got something <laughs> he wants to get off his chest they're, here, so I'll let my, him do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're just landfill. I, I think they're just landfill. The stabilizers in phones. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean... The fact that you you have, I mean, sometimes phones, in particular, if you're following, uh, you know, action, you know, it could be kids' sport or it can be the dog running around the backyard, you know, holding the phone, even though they have got stabilizers in them, can actually be a little difficult. <laughs> for, for some, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. If so. Uh, and the additional stabilizer that's built into this thing is one thing. So to me, that does make sense you've got a nice grip and you can control the phone the zoom and all those kind of things from there but this one has got a couple of other things that i know you'll be excited about (laughs) it's got an extendable sort of selfie mechanism so you can get further away from yourself if you're filming yourself walking around or a group of people walking around but wait there's more (laughs) (laughs) it's Uh, also got a little mini tripod attachment that you can screw into the You're bottom of me a the bit more uh, but so but basically just to describe it so is this this sort of you know it's got a handpiece mm-hmm. and then it's got this sort of c-shaped bit that you hang the phone in yeah which is always wobbly and you can never get level that's basically well, I mean, you're not supposed to get that level. That's the, that's what the gimbal does. I find them so fiddly <laughs> and fussy. No, I've had a couple and given them. I gave one to Will Yeoman. <laughs> we've never discussed it again. I don't know where that ended up. Uh, well, I think it, 
for it, it could be a, a good idea. I'm getting one to test hopefully good. before too well, There's long. obviously a fair bit of operator, operator error at my end, so perhaps you can help me. But s- I mean, it, I, I just think uh, it's, you know, even if you only used it as a selfie stick or the occasional tripod to do your own thing, they cost 250 bucks. It's not the end of the world to get one of these things. And if you are uh, finding it, you know, in particular when you're doing video, difficult to hold your phone and follow action and that sort of stuff, you will get steadier and better video uh, from You got me with the tripod fitting. Mm. I think that's good because I do actually have quite a nice little phone tripod-y selfie stick thing. Yeah, Of course you do. I'm up. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm up to be persuaded. Yeah, we'll wait for okay. it to come. Yeah. So what? So what was it called? Sorry. Uh, it's called the. Uh, it's made by G- DJI, the company that make drones and you know compact cameras, uh, or should yeah. I say action cameras and various other bits and pieces. Uh, it's called the Osmo uh, Mobile Six. Okay. Um, and it cost about two hundred and forty nine dollars, I believe. So, okay. uh, but. St- Stay tuned for when I get a test model, and then I'm, I'll see if I can get Stephen Scalfield convinced. Have you used these, Penny? No, I haven't. Whose side I, are you on? Well, I'm. It's I'm not on the that fence, it's about size. I'd like to see, yeah, what what the difference really is in comparison to the stabilizers in your phone, because it is impressive. You do see a lot of really good quality videos out and around today, and I don't think I've ever been able to nail that oh. that type of quality. I can feel so. this. It I sounds like this. you are more on my side <laughs> of the fence this. than on Stephen's. I can feel this slipping away from you. Know, you two are just going to gang up. Yeah. Okay. Well, well I, I know you're an open-minded person, so we'll see. Yeah, and maybe once you publish the story, we can put a video can, up online or something so yeah. we can see and, and let the people yeah. decide. We can. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right, let the people decide. <laughs> well, thanks for your time today, fellas, and I guess we'll speak to you next week. Indeed. Okay, thank you. Today I'm joined by Tourism New Zealand's General Manager for Australia, Andrew Waddell. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Kia ora, Penny, and kia ora to your listeners. Um, first off, just for the people that are listening that might not know much about you, can you tell us about yourself and what you sort of do in your role at Tourism New Zealand? Yeah, certainly. So um, my name is Andrew Waddell, uh, born and bred uh, Kiwi, um, grew up in Wellington uh, and Auckland University in Dunedin and travelled up and down the country. Uh, I didn't know at the time that all those family trips, trips with friends, uh, return trips from overseas would then become a, a knowledge base for being uh, general manager for Tourism New Zealand based in Australia. Uh, so I actually live in Sydney and our, our role is to inspire and encourage uh, our good Australian friends to visit New Zealand, mm. uh, enjoy the best it's got to offer, and really give them a, a broad understanding of, of what New Zealand has to offer, um, how they can enjoy it through all seasons, really, uh, and uh, make the most of being a, a sort of a country that is uh, very different to New Zealand and uh, it's an exciting place to visit. We've sort of experienced a few sort of challenging years, especially for tourism operators all over the world recently. I guess, what's it been like to be in your position and see New Zealand really reopen to the world? And how is its sort of tourism industry going at the moment? Yeah, well, you know, looking at um, that time during COVID, you know, travel went from uh, New Zealand's number one um, export earner with you know, a huge number of 
uh, visitors uh, to New Zealand and uh, over over the year to really zero. So in Australia went through the same. So New Zealand and Australian journey has been very similar, uh, both long haul destinations for the rest of the world. Uh, but there was a, a camaraderie between the two, a sort of sibling rivalry meets solidarity. And really that both industries supported each other to navigate uh, choppy waters. Um, and as we saw with domestic in Australia, uh, the return of domestic and really looking in your own backyard for everything that's got to offer. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that was something that we um, saw from WA, a lot of um, uh, Western Australians visiting their own state and getting into different places. And we saw that across Australia and also across New Zealand as well. So domestic was uh, the core of the um, the base of, uh, core and base of the tourism industry and keeping that um, really kicking over and New Zealanders and Australians alike really re-educating themselves about the great countries they live in. Mm. And then as the borders opened, uh, Australians was one of was the first to fly market for New Zealand. So, you know, there's a huge number of Australians that visit friends and family in New Zealand. Uh, that, you know, with 40 years of closer economic relations, so there's strong business and commercial um, links between the two countries. And then uh, the diversity of the tourism offering and the, the holiday experience that New Zealand has to offer and, and like-minded, like like for like as New Zealanders to Australia as well means that they've both been um, together in that recovery. Mm. Uh, visitor numbers have returned healthily. Uh, it's not just about um, return of numbers, but it's about, you know, where they go, um, where they're, what communities they're visiting, uh, how they're engaging with nature, how they're relating and building communities. And we've seen a, a steady and sustainable um, growth of, of visitors. Uh, and, you know, that's still got some way to go. Um, we know that flight capacity is still a little bit restricted, but prices are a little bit high in, in domestic and, and internationally. Uh, but we forecast that that will soften and, and make it a little bit easier for, for people to travel. For people who are thinking about visiting New Zealand soon or planning planning a trip in the future, I'm actually interested to hear your sort of travel recommendations. And um, I guess because it's, you know, the two islands, I guess there's so much to see and do. And we'd probably be here all day if we sort of unpacked every single one of your favourite things to do. Well, maybe we can sort of categorise them into seasons and, and hear your sort of top picks for um, winter, summer and, and, and the shoulder seasons. No, absolutely. It won't, be, it won't be a whole day, but maybe half a day discussion. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's, um, oh, it's my favourite topic, obviously, the, uh, in not just my role, but, you know, a, a proud key we've been able to talk about um, Aotearoa in New Zealand. I think, you know, as it stands now, uh, autumn going into winter, um, you know, just to give a, a, lay, a lay of the land, um, you know, the four, four seasons in the year. We're in autumn at the moment, so... Um, some great autumn colours through uh, central Otago with uh, Arrowtown out of Queenstown. Uh, winter, um, and just very much a summary, winter is fantastic for uh, for ski. Um, so there's 24 ski resorts across uh, the country, a majority in the South Island. Um, and then um, into spring, um, you get that sort of, you know, longest uh, Sundays and you're able to enjoy a lot of the North Island is particularly very good with cultural activities through Rotorua uh, and then into summer and um, one of the things about New Zealand long summer days so with daylight savings you know you can get light up till uh, like 10pm which is fantastic uh, and that's where a lot of the additional activities whether you're hiking 
um, uh, and, and they're able to enjoy something like a great walk through the mountain biking. Um, what I would say across the board is, you know, six and a half an hour flight, it is one flight, which is fantastic, into Auckland Airport uh, and then uh, Main Air New Zealand. I think you've got dailies there now from Air New Zealand from Perth into Auckland. You've got the direct network from uh, Air New Zealand to the domestic across North and South Island. You know, the longest domestic flight is just over an hour, I believe. So, you know, very short, um, short skipping a jump into um, one of the domestic towns. Uh, and then um, a really good hub and um, is a hub and spoke, which we call it, which is face yourself in the city uh, and enjoy the surrounds by short drives or the, you know, the classic road trip. Um, and there's lots of different road trips out of each of the main centres, uh, rent a car or a camper van and, and really um, explore some of the regions. So, you know, very much a lot to offer. I like that you've talked about it from a seasonal perspective. A crowded House talked about four seasons in one day. Um, it's very much, you know, fantastic four seasons across uh, the country and really able to enjoy a range of experiences during uh, any, any of those seasons. Mm. And it sounds like there's something for every sort of stripe of traveller as well. If you're a family wanting to, to experience new things or, um, you know, young couples that, that just want to go and check out some new wineries and stuff like that, there's heaps to do. Yes, there is. And um, what we saw with, you know, our return of travel post-COVID was um, a couple of things. One, um, people wanting to be independent and be able to travel where they wanted and how they wanted and, and you know, safe, safely and, and have be masters of their own itinerance. So that's where we saw uh, road trips, which can be, uh, you know, one or two people or um, and staying at sort of very nice resorts and so forth around the country or the road trip with a, um, with a family and so forth. So that was, that was really good. Um, but also that reconnection and uh, deeper connection within nature. So um, one of the things that New Zealand's got to offer um, is uh, nature and diversity of nature and landscape within a short period of time. So it's very easy to get around. Reminded um, in one of your earlier podcasts that um, there's a lot of familiar things around travelling in New Zealand, same side of the road, language. Um, so it's a world away but very close in many, many instances. So it's very easy across the board for... Uh, older travellers um, want to, might want to take a bit of time, longer time on the roads through to, um, you know, that uh, short trip, um, packing a lot in in a short period of time. So uh, a lot of range of things uh, and, and obviously getting into nature, as I talked about. One of the other areas of growth we've seen is, is really around that deeper immersion in community uh, and also within uh, the world view of Māori, so Te Ao Māori. Um, we've seen um, really a lot of more interest in that um, across Australia with Indigenous tourism. But in New Zealand, it's deeply integrated in uh, not just within New Zealand, but also um, within the tourism sector. So uh, even through doing adventure and doing, uh, staying at different places, um, Te Rio, the language of, of Māori will come through, uh, the sort of nice and warm embrace of some of the principles of, of Māori as well. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, deeply immersive experience and something that um, people will carry with them as that when they leave the country. Mm, yeah, the cultural experiences do sound incredible and, and really engaging as well with um, people that are visiting, but with the, the locals that, um, I guess, are from New Zealand and can sort of share the, the rich heritage that the country has to offer. So that's really, yeah, I think there's a lot of 
really appealing sort of aspects for a lot of travellers from Australia to to come over and and visit New Zealand. And I think I also just wanted to touch on, just because we're huge on sort of diving and snorkelling and everything like that here in WA, um, I heard about uh, the PADI program that was launched uh, earlier this year, I think it was. Can you sort of explain what that program was? Yeah, absolutely. So um, little did we know, um, or the world knew, that there was uh, a way to be a certified um, diver as a, a mermaid diver. So um, on World uh, Mermaid Day, we teamed up with Patty and, and made made a little bit more people, a lot more people aware of this. So in one of the ways is the form of free diving. So form of free diving where you are. Uh, um, diving in the form of, of mermaid and you're able to get um, certified and then train others. Um, and so what it was is a really a way of bringing to life uh, New Zealand underwater. Um, New Zealand's got some phenomenal snorkeling and uh, diving. Uh, I myself have um, uh, had um, certified um, not hugely experienced, but enjoy it. Uh, and I've dived in an amazing place out of Tutukaka with a dive, um, company dive Tutukaka. And, um, there's a place called Poor Nights. And, uh, so we've, um, taken people there before. Um, and it's one of uh, Jacques Cousteau's top 10, um, dive sites. Mm, okay. Um, phenomenal place. Uh, and there's a lot of dive operations that run out from there. Um, and so, you know, we were able to bring to life New Zealand's underworld and overworld, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. um, with what the diving experience gets to offer. In addition to that, there's additional um, fantastic snorkeling places as well. So Abel Tasman, you're able to kayak uh, and then, you know, dive um, uh, and then snorkel, you know, when you, you pitch tent and, and uh, you know, on these beautiful beaches on the top of the South Island. So, you know, the PADI program and the Mermaid um, certification is, is an interesting one and really helps bring to life um, the joys of uh, getting underwater and experiencing um, the underworld. Mm. No, and I saw some um, images of the the mermaid sort of diving experience, and that there's some really great pictures that I'll have to share when I when I put this story um, when I file the story, I guess, and it goes to print because it's it's definitely worth having a look at. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to to share with our listeners about travelling New Zealand that you think is sort of worthy of knowing? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, you know. Um, one of the great things about travelling to New Zealand is, um, you know, the idea that we're uh, just over the over the Tasman. Um, so, you know, a lot of Australians sort of have this idea that they'll visit in the future, or, um, uh, or you know, I'll, I'll go later on, or I'm going to go somewhere else. And you know, we're really encouraging the idea of being able to travel there now um, and really make the most of it. Um, there's this idea that. Uh, Visitors arrive as strangers but leave as whānau or family, and um, it is a, it's a place you feel the embrace. Mm. Um, and so you get the sort of experience of and view of this amazing landscape and and um, time on the ground. But it's really you leave talking about the people, um, and um, you know that that's something special that you're able to, um, to to take with you. The other thing I'd also raise is um, you know the the food offering of New Zealand is under um, uh, hidden under a rock I would say um, you know Australians love uh, food and wine um, whether it be the story of, of prominent provenance of the food through to the different dining occasions and, and, and quality of food and New Zealand's um, 
up there with the best of them. Um, so, you know, if you are looking to travel there, it's not just the places you go and the experiences you do, but really looking into the restaurants that are available, the chefs uh, that are on offer, the, the style of cooking, we're seeing um, a lot of growth of, um, of different cultural experiences and food-based tours as well. Um, as an example, there's a couple of one in Auckland there as well, uh, and also um, in Wellington, the, the city, Cackle uh, uh, City as well. So definitely looking into the food and beverage offering. Um, we, you know, New Zealand is also known for its famous wine, so that's definitely something to enjoy after a good day. Awesome. Okay, well, before we sort of wrap up our chat today, I've got one final question that I wanted to ask you. And um, even though you might be tempted to sort of mention somewhere in New Zealand, um, I'm actually keen to hear your response because the question is, um, if you could jump on a plane tomorrow and, and go anywhere in the world outside of New Zealand and Australia, where would you go and, and why? Oh, it's that's a... Uh... Uh, tough question. It's very hard for me not to say anything around <laughs> around New Zealand. Um, look, I, I, I think there'd, there'd be two things for me. Um, you know, with borders, uh, you know, only recently opened within, you know, just over a year now, um, there's still a lot of pent-up demand and travel that I haven't been able to realise in the in time that was closed. Visiting friends and family is still uh, is important to me and there's uh, family in the UK uh, and time and life in, in London that I had uh, that I'd love to get back there at some stage. Uh, the second one probably um, uh, wouldn't be a plane, but it would be a plane and boat, and that would uh, be to, to get down into Antarctica. Yeah. Um, spent a lot of time watching uh, a lot of um, planet documentaries in the last couple of uh, years, appreciation of environment and ensuring um, uh, that we're looking after the environment, what we call Kaitirakitanga, um, a connection to people in place and looking after the environment is really important. I think uh, it would be uh, amazing but also quite confronting to see uh, Antarctica um, and, and what the state of health that is there, but the inspiration that it can offer to us all. And that's linked to some time I also had in uh, Canada um, just after university and seen grizzly bears. So there's a part, piece of me that would just absolutely love to see um, some polar bears so that would take me to the other end of the, the world so three three different destinations uh, all in um, different parts of the world. Yeah great answer and um, you can tell that you're sort of a, a nature lover at heart so that's really nice. Okay well uh, thanks for, for chatting with us today and we'll sort of be publishing more about New Zealand across the travel pages in the West Australian and online um, but otherwise thank you for your time. Yeah, and thank you very much.